talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today on this Ruby Tuesday. Scott Radley in for the other Scott, for Scott Thompson, who is vacationing this week, catching a well-earned break. I'll be here this week for him. Glad you are along. Hope you had a magnificent holiday weekend. Just a spectacular holiday weekend, which, you know, unless that storm caused a tree to fall on your house, um, which, oh man, to those who had damage and all that stuff, we are, uh, that that's, that's awful. That's terrible. We are sorry for that. But if you were not one, I guess, um, you know, by comparison, all of our weekends were pretty good. So hope you had a fantastic holiday weekend. Maybe you too are on vacation this week, whatever it is. Glad you're here with us on Hamilton today. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show today because we have tons. Will, who is creating the content and lining this stuff up, Will has been working overtime. Will is Will is really in line for a raise based solely on today's show is what's going on. We are going to be chatting about all this stuff. We're going to be talking about the storm on the weekend because the storm had a new name. Did you hear this name? It was a Derecho. And I don't even know if I'm saying that right. We'll find out. But, you know, we're getting all these new weather names these days. Well, why wouldn't we get one for the storm on the weekend? What in the world is a Derecho storm? We will try and find that out. Your Toronto Blue Jays stink. This was the team that was supposed to run away with the American League, go to the World Series, win the World Series, score a billion runs. It's a quarter of the way through the season, and, you know, there's time to get things turned around, but they stink. We'll try and find out why they stink so badly. Stagflation is coming. So, just like the first hour, we've got storms. Stinky Blue Jays and stagflation. Oh, I promise you, the the attitude and, and it will it'll get more upbeat as the show goes on. Uh, next hour, well, not right away. Uh, it's a one year anniversary of the Cam Loops Residential School discovery. We'll be talking about that one. If you are a voter who supports the Conservatives, or even if you're not, with the election coming up, why? How has the Conservative Party? managed to get the endorsement of a bunch of unions. Hands up if you never in your life saw that one coming. Yeah, but they are. There's six or seven now unions in Ontario that have made public endorsements of the Conservative Party, have abandoned the NDP. It's a bizarre, unbelievable, never expected story. Why are they doing this? We'll find out. We're going to talk about the CFL, which the Players Association has shockingly rejected the deal that was agreed to with the bargaining team in the league. Uh, we found out last night or this morning early that, yeah, the players say, no, thanks. Go back and try again. Didn't see that coming either. What does this mean? Are we going to go, are we going to see a strike? Are we going to see a lockout? Are we going to see a new quickly negotiated deal and quickly ratified and everything carries on? We'll find out. A story that is going to be a huge story in the next few days. The city of Hamilton is in on June 1st will be firing up to 440 employees who have not been vaccinated. This is going to, some say, cost the city a lot of money and others say the city can't even win this fight. So is this something that the city should be doing at this point? Councillor who has been pushing against this is going to be joining us in the five o'clock hour, as well as an employment lawyer 
about whether the city has got a chance to actually win this. That is a tough call, whether it can. And we'll open the phone lines to you about whether or not where we are in COVID, what you know about COVID, your opinion, should the city be going ahead and firing employees who have not been vaccinated? Or at this point, do we say, well, COVID seems to almost be over. Why are we doing this now? We'll we'll let you have your say on that one. Uh, and then in the six o'clock hour, yes, in the six o'clock hour, we're, we're, we're looking way down the road here. There is there are there is science. There are studies that show how important play is to young children, very young children. Just free play to develop their social skills, their communication skills, their coordination, their creativity, all those things. And yet more and more and more schools, it seems, with kids, kindergarten, play schools, whatever else, uh, finding more and more study time to get ahead in reading, get ahead in writing, get ahead in those kind of things, but less and less playtime. Is this a mistake and how is this affecting our kids? We're going to talk about a new poll that is just out about where the election looks like it's going here in Ontario. And we will wrap with Ben's story of the day because that's what we do here. If you don't know what Ben's story of the day is, well, either stay here until 7 o'clock today, which we would applaud, or come back at about 6.50 after you have to leave somewhere through this. Come back many times through the day. We'll be here for the next four hours. I know stuff was flying around. Some stuff in our backyard was taken off, and we didn't lose anything. Our neighbor almost lost their trampoline. That happens. I've seen videos of that before. But yeah, it was a it was a nasty, nasty storm that blew through. Um, people lost their lives, which is just tragic. People had houses damaged by trees, like giant trees falling on them. Cars were flattened. Branches were down. Electricity was out. It was it was a mess. It was a mess. But this wasn't just your everyday average run-of-the-mill big storm, apparently. No, there was a special name for this one, which is appropriate because in recent years, remember we've learned all these new weather words in recent years. We've had the polar vortex, that was new. And before then we had La Nina or La Nino or El Nino. We had a weather bomb. We had uh, thunder snow here on CHML. Jay McQueen always likes to talk about grapple, which is a great word. Uh, but here we got the derecho storm, the derecho storm. And again, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. I know who will. David Phillips is a senior climatologist with Environment Canada. He joins us now. David, thank you for the time today. Well, nice to be with you, Scott. And you're so right. I mean, you think of all those fertile minds that must be on the midnight shift in the weather office <laughs> and coming up with, uh, with these names. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's just a family of winds. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of wind events. And so I guess they, they try to distinguish from one from the other by giving them these kind of names. Now, this is a Spanish-sounding, and, and it's torner means, um, in Spanish, I'm not pronouncing it right, I'm sure, but it, it really means twisting. And the yes. tornado would come from that. Derecho yes. or derecho, um, it means straight ahead. And uh, that essentially describes the kind of winds we saw on Saturday across the province and into Quebec, straight ahead. Nothing twisting about this. It was like a like an army, uh, a line of, of thunderstorms that just lined up and just mowed down like a like a, a an army of uh, soldiers just along the first line and just going across the battlefield and just mowing everything down. And and that's what we saw from 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 London. Uh, through Hamilton, uh, Toronto, Kingston, Ottawa, 
and onto Quebec City. And um, and it was this is a direct co, meaning a, a straight ahead, straight line kind of wind, a downburst wind. I mean, it has all the elements, uh, Scott, of a of just a normal normal garden variety thunderstorm in the summer. The heat, humidity, the uh, and out of it comes the winds and the rain and the and the hail. But boy, this one was so organized and was relentless and moved at the speed of a of a vehicle traveling along the 401 at at uh, legal speeds. Uh, it just made wow. it from London right through to to Ottawa. And of course, it did a lot of damage. And and really, Scott, it was something that you would be reminiscent of the winter time. You know, where you have a blizzard or an ice storm that would move through from Windsor right through to uh, uh, to Montreal. Um, and but in the summertime, they tend to have these events. Summer events or tend to be neighborhoods or an intersection or and then cleanup, of course, begins. But this one was was so province wide that uh, it really was a, a really a challenge to try and and get power back on. And the other thing, it took out massive trees. I think in many ways, Scott, there was a certain bad luck involved in the sense that if this occurred in April, which they can occur, the leaves would not be on trees. Uh, in July, the ground of the root ball would be just cement-like uh, in that ground. But in May, the ground is soft, the leaves got trees, uh, got, uh, the trees got out leaves, and so they act like sailboats and, and pushing more stress and, and pressure on the trees and just knocking them out. So when you talk about the, uh, it, okay, let's, let's get into this, because when you talk about the tor, what was the first one you said? Not tornado, uh, but the word that comes from that word. Is, uh, tornado. Spanish for tornado or twisty, where right. this one is a uh, straight line. So when you talk about that, obviously a tornado is a very, very small twisting yes. section. It's a very, but is the entire storm surge swirling as opposed to this one where the whole thing is a straight line? Pretty well. A tornado is, I mean, you can get family of tornadoes, but they hop, skip, and jump across the landscape. They often, well, I'll give you an example. For example, I live in Barrie, north of Toronto, and the tornado we had last July, well, it was about, 500 meters wide and traveled about 12 kilometers, had winds that were up to 210 uh, kilometers per hour. Well, this one didn't have the strong winds, but boy, it was a huge, uh, it measured from 600 to 1,000 kilometers long and had uh, the width was about uh, 100 uh, kilometers. So what the storm lacked in strength in terms of not tornadic or hurricane force winds but uh, or maybe low level winds but they certainly had in an aerial extent and 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 impact so uh, that was really i think the big the big thing that was sort of marked this different than just your garden variety summer storm this was in fact a uh, a spring storm, a May storm, a lot of hot air, a lot of humidity. I mean, in, in the Hamilton area, I mean, you had temperatures that got up to 28 degrees by, by 11 o'clock. Humidex was 34. And then the storm hit, and the temperature dropped to, to 17 degrees with no humidex. I mean, it was just a total transformation of the air mass from a summer to, to more of a comfortable spring-like kind of thing. And, of course, all that energy is wound up into the atmosphere and is, is, is shot out with strong winds and, and relentless winds. 
and you know we measure them at the airport 120 uh, generally 130 maybe at the worst I think in Kitchener Waterloo but you know along that track Scott I mean the winds could be they're gusts and so they they gust higher or lower and so you could have had some forces that were uh, much stronger than that 120 which is sort of the common denominator for the winds across mm-hmm. uh, most of Ontario on, on Saturday. So this this idea of these more straights, has this always been with us? Is As you, you were joking off the top about the names, I mean, is yeah. this truly something that always has existed? We've just given it a name now that we've never heard of, so we're all saying, what was that? Or is this some a new phenomenon somehow? Yeah, it's a good question, Scott. And I think it's been around. I mean, I have known uh, Derecos uh, hitting Ontario, mostly in the wooded areas, up in northwestern Ontario, in cottage country, where they took down hundreds of thousands of trees and caused power outages for, you know, three or four weeks, but not in urban areas. I mean, there's nothing about the urban area. Um, and there have been years where you don't see any Derecos. They tend to be uh, mostly in mid- midwestern part of the United States, around the Great Lakes, Ontario, New York, Pennsylvania and maybe into Quebec, but nothing in Atlantic Canada or Pacific Canada or on the prairies. They tend to be sort of almost the a, a center part of the, uh, of the province. And they are just a group of, of same-acting uh, weather, weather events uh, or, or weather um, thunderstorms, uh, a whole line of them, and they, they are widespread, long-lived, they move very fast. And, but the key thing is there's a cluster of these things moving in a straight line like, um, you know, like soldiers in a battlefield, and they just mow everything down, and, uh, and, uh, and, and they, now they can have tornadoes embedded in them, which should make sure, them worse, sure. but this, in this case, I don't think there were any tornadoes, but you knew the day was going to be a, a stormy one because of the heat and humidity, you weren't going to escape that for sure. David Phillips, Senior Climatologist with Environment Canada. Now we know what a Derrico storm is. So add it to your list with the the, uh, polar vortexes and all the other ones. David, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Okay, Scott. Bye-bye now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, I want to go down to St. Louis where the Blue Jays are playing again against the Cardinals. Lost last night. Mike Wilner, a columnist with the Toronto Star on baseball, former radio guy, long time, joins us now. Mike, how are you today? I'm all right, thank you. I'm in uh, lovely St. Louis, Missouri, so what could be bad? Well, you know, uh, it seems like an appropriate place because the Blue Jays, you know, they talked a great game and everyone else around them talked a great game at the start of this year. And now they the show-me state seems like a good place for these guys because... I think it's time for them to start showing some people. It's been, it, it, you know, it's it's still early, yes, but we're at the quarter pole now, Mike, and it's it's maybe time to start showing something with this team, but I don't know what they can show. Well, first of all, uh, horse racing fans just cringed when you said that, like they did when I did a few years ago, and I got <laughs> a big talking to. They are not at the quarter pole. The quarter pole is when you're a quarter mile from the finish, so they are at the quarter mark. The they are at the quarter now. mark. To all horse uh, racing fans, they, we apologize for our ignorance. Yes, and I apologize because I did it about a million times too. Um, but look, here's here's what they're showing us right now. Um, they're not showing us the offense that we expected by any means. Um, although you know, you look at the back of the baseball cards and you know it's in there. Uh, but even while being so disappointing offensively and having their games be so frustrating to watch, being utterly unable to hit with runners in scoring position. They are dead last in the major leagues and 
They were 0 for 10 last night after going 1 for 10 on Sunday. Even with all that, a quarter of the way through the season, they're in a playoff spot. So, the, you know, that's, that's the shocking thing. There are people who have said to me over the past few days, even past couple of weeks, they're digging a hole that's too deep to climb out of. Yeah, they're not. Not at all. The, the fact that they're 22 and 20, I think, as opposed to 12 and 30 or even 15 and whatever it would be, 27, um, that's huge. The fact that they're in a playoff position right now with zero offense when we know that there's so much more in there, I mean, I think that should be a reason for people to be either celebrating or wiping their brows with relief because they haven't dug themselves a hole. And, you know, that's without pretty much any of the... This was Santiago Espinal leading the team in batting average and on base percentage and doubles and second in OPS and first in position player war. It's ridiculous. But yet they haven't dug themselves a hole at all. It's, uh, yes, uh, Espinal, you know, if you, uh, if you had bet on him being the leading batter for the Blue Jays, um, reasonably sure you also would have picked the winner of the Kentucky Derby, speaking of horse races. But, um, okay, how much of this then, there, there's two things here. Um, how much of this is the fact that they have had fairly a, the, the lineup of teams they've played so far in the first quarter of the season, they, they've played a lot of really good teams. They haven't played a lot of the stinkers yet. How much does that come into play here? I think that has a lot to do with it. I wrote a column about that last week uh, or on the weekend looking at the, um, you know, look back at the first quarter of the season. And the truth of the matter is that over the first 35 games of the year, the Blue Jays played 25 of them against the Yankees, Astros, Rays, and Red Sox. They had the hardest schedule in Major League Baseball over the first 35 games of the season. And, you know, couple that with the fact that as well as playing those tough, tough teams. They also had to play 30 games in 31 days to start the season, uh, including 18 in a row. And that's, that's not easy at all, especially with a shortened spring training. But for the final 127 games of the regular season, which began with their last homestand, they have the fourth easiest schedule in Major League Baseball the rest of the way. So, mm. you know, I'll take difficult for 35 and super easy for 127, but they do have to start cashing in. They are only four and three so far uh, in into this easy portion. They could have swept Seattle and Cincinnati, but they um, couldn't get it done in the final game of either one of those series. And look, St. Louis is, uh, I mean, they, they came came to town. I think they had the same record as St. Louis. So this is a pretty even match. And you would expect on the road a split. That's solid stuff. So that's what they got to get done tonight. I, I rarely, if ever, look to social media for good ideas. Um, however, <laughs> uh, it is a place to, you know, it's the modern day water cooler. You do get a sense of what people sometimes are thinking there. And there's a lot of shouting that, you know, maybe a change in batting coach, a change in something would be the thing to inspire this team. Are you a believer that a change in the batting coaches or the batting approach or someone at the top would, would change anything? I mean, the approach needs to change. Yeah, these guys are, are not um, hitting the way they're capable of. And, and 
eventually it'll come, but they have to start. And it's starting. You could see it in the last couple of weeks. They have to start having better at bats, making, you know, this is a, the buzzword in the game now, making better swing decisions uh, and, and things like that. Uh, absolutely. You can't just continue doing what you're doing right now and magically hope it's going to change. But these guys are working very, very hard every day. As, as frustrated as the fans are, the players are, uh, you know, conservatively 100,000 times more frustrated. They're embarrassed. Um, they, they're, they're beside themselves. So they're doing their best to try to fix it. Um, as far as changing coaching, I know that that's what a lot of people lean on, and I think that really comes from that uh, hockey mentality of coach as motivator, and really it's just about effort, um, and if you try harder, you'll win. Baseball is often not the case, and if you try harder, um, you know, there's a, a mantra in baseball that's try easier, and that's when, when things will come to you. As far as coaches, uh, coaching changes, I mean, look, Guillermo Martinez was the Blue Jays hitting coach last August when they scored 27 runs in 10 games. Right? Yeah. He was he, he was also their hitting coach last September when they scored 132 runs in 15 games. Right? It, it, he didn't get dumb in the off season. Uh, these guys, it, it's not like you know you tune a guy out like you do a hockey coach. So I don't think that a change, a change in, in coaching uh, because the team's not hitting is really nothing more than eyewash. It doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything, and it's not his fault. So why should he lose his job? Yeah, and, and it's, I mean, look, we've got to run. It's a great point that he was the guy who was there when they were tearing the hide off the ball, and unless, and I'm not aware of anything, unless in the offseason, he came in with an entirely different approach and told them to do everything differently, which I would find rather surprising. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't quite know how you put it on him. Uh, Mike Wilner, down in St. Louis, really appreciate the time today. Thanks, as always. No problem. Just want to pump the podcast before you dump me. Yes, please. I forgot. Please do, yes. Yeah, make sure everybody everybody in Hamilton should be listening to Deep Left Field, the, the best baseball podcast out there. comes out every Thursday afternoon. And, uh, yeah, subscribe, rate, review, find it wherever you find your podcast. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> Deep left field. That's Mike Wilner. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So we have heard that we are going to be hit in this country with something called stagflation. And now we're hearing that we should worry about shrinkflation. We've already had inflation. I think we should maybe introduce a consternationflation or something. I, I can't even keep track of all deflations. I don't really, you know who can? You know who can help us out a lot with this one? Uh, that would be Ian Lee, the associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes today to try and uh, help the great unwashed among us. We appreciate this. <laughs> Thanks very much, uh, Scott. Um, the reason I, I think I know a little bit more about this is because I lived through it in the 1970s. It wasn't some theory. I was a banker in the mm. 1970s. I lent money to real people, not in a textbook. This is before I became a professor. I'm not putting down professors. I love being a professor, but 
I lived in Ottawa. I still do. And I lent millions and millions throughout the 70s. And in the latter half, I'm talking from 75 on, uh, really after Pierre Trudeau introduced wage and price controls for two years called six and five, limiting wages to 6% the first year, 5% the second, they expired and inflation really took off and went up to seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and it kept on going. And then the interest rates were following, not leading, but following, and they weren't doing the trick. They weren't bringing it to an end. And what we had was stagflation. And what that meant is we had fairly high unemployment. We had uh, uh, lots of inflation, but we didn't the stag came from the word, we weren't growing. We were growing at 8% a year, for example, but the inflation was 8% a year. Well, eight minus eight equals zero. In other words, the real growth after inflation was zero. Normally, in normal times, like in the last 15, 20, 25 years, you know, the economy is growing along at four, and then you minus the 2% inflation, which we were experiencing. So four minus two equals 2% real growth. So the economy was growing in real terms. Stagflation, you don't have that. The inflation eats up all the growth. So your standard of living is standing still. You're not, your standard of living is not increasing. We and some people say, in the 70s. And some people say that this is kind of a contradictory economic system. And, and so let, let me just see if I understand this correctly. And as the professor, tell me if I've got this right. Um, we've got a little bit of unemployment rising. We've got fewer people. We've got less money to spend, which drives demand down. Supply then is up. So prices should fall. And yet we've got inflation going on at the same time. So how is that happening? Okay, uh, I'll correct you on a couple of things. You said we have less right. money. Actually, we have too much money. Uh, I mean, that sounds really crazy, doesn't it? We have, and I, I blame Everyone, you know, there's, there's causes for these things, okay? It, it, little green men from Mars don't come down on Earth and say, you know, I hate you Canadians, I'm gonna give you lots of inflation. Okay, now some of that inflation is from outside, we know that. There is, there are global drivers of inflation, we know that, but there are also domestic drivers of inflation. You can have both. We can't really do, uh, I shouldn't say we can't do anything about uh, external inflation, I'll get to that in a moment. But what we did in Canada, and I've been criticizing the government since, uh, April 21, even after, okay, we, we did the lockdowns, okay, we all know why, and then we did the COVID, the, 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 the CERB and all that, at the beginning, we know why. And then the lockdowns ended, the economy snapped back like a very strong rubber band, and the GDP took off, and the jobs all came back. So what, and I'm talking a year and a half ago, so what did the government do? It said, well, let's spend hundreds of billions of dollars more. And we did. We spent so much money. There is 300 billion, billion, that's with a B, everybody, sitting in banks in Canada because we have so much spare cash chasing those goods. We cannot spend it because there's not enough goods to spend the money on. We poured gasoline on the raging fire and we claim, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance are claiming they're putting out the fire, but they're not. They're putting gas on the fire. That makes the fire worse. So we are spending, as we speak, we are still inflating the economy. We're running up deficits. Deficits are stimulus. We're stimulating the economy. 
when there is a shortage of goods. And so what you do when you stimulate people to go buy stuff that they can't buy, you they bid up the prices. And so, yes, I'm not blaming the government for all the inflation. We did not invade Ukraine. That was Russia. Okay. But my point is, we did things in Canada that made it worse. We are, as I speak on May, I think it's the 24th of 2022, we are still pouring gasoline on the fire. We are still running deficits. We are still keeping interest rates at 1% when the governor of the Bank of Canada, in his own words, both on television and in print in the monetary policy report, says that the interest rate is too low. It's below the what they call the neutral rate, where the government is, the, the bank is neither stimulating nor cooling the economy. The, the neutral rate right now is between 2 and 3%. We're at 1%. So that means we're stimulating the economy, pouring gas on the fire, to use my phrase, both with monetary policy, which is too loose, and it should be more contractionary with higher rates, and we're still pouring gasoline on the fire through the Minister of Finance and Fiscal Spending. Mm. So we have a we are making the problem worse. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. We, we're glad to hear that that uh, that it's only going to that it's only going to get worse. Everyone's excited about the three dollar gas at the pumps, perhaps, or the eight dollar dozen bananas at the at the supermarket. Well, ho- hopefully, someone figures this out before it gets to there. Uh, Ian Lee from Sprott School of Business. Always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. I think there's some things that we all agree that you just know are constant that will never change. The sun rising and setting. Perfect example. The Leafs disappointing in the playoffs. Yeah, there's another one. But the other one that you would say is just an absolute, that it never changes, is when it comes to an election, unions will always end up in the firm, cozy embrace of the NDP. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's how it's worked for seemingly generations, as long as I can remember. When an election rolls around, everybody goes after the unions. A few times they'll go to the liberals, but usually it's the NDP. Conservatives? Ha! Huh, never in a billion years would the unions line up with the conservatives. Never. Never going to happen. I will grow a full afro by tomorrow morning before the conservatives and the unions get together. Except, at least that's what I thought, except all of a sudden we're in the waning days of a provincial election campaign. Not one, not two, not three, five, six, I think, six large unions now have endorsed the Conservative Party. Apparently the world is spinning on a different axis these days, and who saw this coming? I want to bring in Victoria Mancinelli. She is Leuna's Director of Public Relations, Marketing, and Strategic Partnerships. Victoria, thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, maybe you saw this coming. I never thought I would see the day. <laughs> so what is going on? Leuna is one of the unions that has endorsed the Conservatives. What's going on? You know, it comes with what we've seen, the relationships we've established and transparency and a willingness to work with labor. And I think it's important here to give credit where credit is due. We have seen leadership by the current Minister of Labor, um, Monty Bignotten, invest in the skilled trades portfolio, invest in workers across the construction industry at levels that we have not seen in the history of Ontario. So when it comes to La Una, we're not beholden to one party. We work with 
all levels of government, across all party lines, who are willing to prioritize policies that impact our members, their livelihoods and job opportunities, which this government has done. One of the knocks against unions, not your union specifically, against all of them, against not, against unions at election time has been, they will simply vote or align with whoever throws the most money at them. So is this a case of you and the others saying, look, they're promising us the most right now, so they're our friends right now? You know, I, I think it, it comes with, of course, investing in opportunities, but not to suggest, you know, it's all about these money deals. We had a previous Liberal government, um, and I know in your opening segment, you spoke about how unions have traditionally supported NDP and Liberals. Well, when the Liberals were in power and had a seat at the table to enact change and invest in labour, they actually orchestrated a direct attack against LIUNA members. And this was specifically Stephen Dalduca and Kathleen Wynne, um, who orchestrated an attack on the collective bargaining rights of LIUNA members in an attempt to strip them of their rights strip them of their jobs and wages, and worse, strip them of their union membership. So I think when it comes to aligning with a party, you have to really look at a party who is listening to the needs of your members. And of course, listen, not every government is going to be perfect. We do have to hold government accountable on certain issues that affect members in other sectors outside of the skilled trades. But this government has shown a willingness to work with labor, work with LIUNA, and work with the trades to cut red red tape, eliminate barriers, and to really advance the skilled trades to new levels that we have not seen. Do you have a good idea why, uh, because the the NDP right now, when this question is asked, what they say is, look, yes, there's a few unions like yours, but look at our big public sector unions. They are still all in in our corner. Any idea why it is the private unions that are looking to the conservatives in the public sector unions are still very much with the NDP? Sure. I think, you know, the NDP policies probably resonate more with the public sector. And who am I to judge how any union endorses a specific party if those policies are more in line with, you know, that union and and the needs of their membership? But I think the NDP have abandoned Um, private sector unions, especially when it comes to investing in infrastructure, which creates thousands upon thousands of jobs for our members in the construction industry and skilled trades. These are long-term careers that our members rely on to put food on the table and to earn a good wage and their livelihoods. So in a way, the NDP have abandoned a lot of what the private sector, not all, but when it comes to Lima, they have And I think the Conservatives have really understood the importance of the skilled trades and construction industry. And again, through leaderships of key ministers, have taken the time to come to our training centres, to meet with leadership, to speak with members, and really invest in opportunities that, again, are going to invest in long-term employment for our members. I think if when I ask you this next thing, you're going to answer both is is going to be your (laughs) default answer. But uh, I'm going to ask you anyway, and hopefully you can pick one or the other. Is this then a compliment to the Conservatives more, or is it an indictment of the NDP and Liberals more? I will say both. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It is a compliment to the Conservatives because, you know, Conservatives have a uh, tradition of being anti-worker. It's not a secret. And I don't think that we have to generalize here when they have been putting in the work They've been extending the olive branch. They have been building relationships. So rather than putting up a barrier just based on these 
archaic ideologies of what a conservative party is or should be. We welcomed that dialogue. You know, in, in the election four years ago, we also endorsed uh, the Ford government as well as NDP candidates. It was more of an anything but liberal. And, you know, I think when it comes to Stephen Del Duca, he's still out there with soundbite policies saying he cares about workers, he cares about collective bargaining, but his track record and his history when he was in government to make these decisions and to enact the changes that he's now saying he can do, um, they speak for themselves. When it comes to the NDP, we do still work with the NDP. There are many policies that they have, um, you know, suggested that will impact a lot of our members, especially in the healthcare and industrial space. So we will still work with the NDP, and we are endorsing some NDP candidates in key ridings. That is Victoria Mancinelli, Liuna or Liuna. You said Liuna, right? It's Liuna, Liuna. However you want to say it. Uh, because you want to know something? There was a big, and we, this is totally off topic, but there was a big debate the other day because one of the politicians said Layuna and people on social media said, they're saying it wrong. So it can, you're okay <laughs> with either. I'm okay with either, yes. All right. Liuna, Layuna, that is uh, Layuna, <laughs> Liuna's Director of Public Relations, Marketing and Strategic Partnerships. And thanks for clearing that up. That was good. Uh, Victoria Mancinelli, thanks for this. Thanks, Scott. Uh, see, you learned something today. You can say, e- say it either way and be right. It's like saying Arkells or the Arkells, you know, kind of the same thing. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It appeared after a brief strike that the players union and the league had agreed on a new deal, went to the players last night and lo and behold, nope, voted down. No agreement on this. So what happens now? This was, this was wildly unexpected. So what happens now? Let me bring in Rick Zamprin, who's been up since, uh, I don't know when, talking about this on Good Morning Hamilton this morning. He's uh, a guy who is as involved and knows about football as much as anyone in the city. Rick, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I Well, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm confused is what I am because I'm trying to figure out what happens now. So they voted this down. It appears that Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, uh, according to Dave Naylor from TSN, who tweeted this out, Randy Ambrosi has sent back a new proposal, but where do we go with this? So where we have been, before we get to where we go, not to take a page out of Marvin Ryder, but I like his <laughs> tack on this. It's a good one. <laughs> Is that a week ago, uh, we will know, or we, we found out that the CFLPA and the CFL came to an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement. And within that, there were certain provisions that were certainly different from years gone by. The main one being uh, the ratio and what the CFL and the PA had agreed to last Wednesday was that uh, each team would be allowed what they would call three nationalized Americans. So if you are an American player and you spent a specific number of years in the league with the same team, you could be deemed, for up to 49% of the snaps in a game, a Canadian player or a national player. Um, so Let me jump CFL in for just and, one sec. Let, let yeah. me just jump in for one sec, just for those who don't follow this league all that closely, just to explain this, because the CFL uniquely requires a certain number of Canadians to be on the field all the time. Yes. So just as a little background, go, go even further back than where we were, just so we understand that where this is coming. Carry on, please. 
Yeah, so correct. So every CFL team has to dra- has to start at least seven Canadians on the field, and that could be a mixture of offense and defense. So, you know, the 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 union and the uh, the um, the league said, all right, you know, this makes sense. Let's go forward with it, and um, they recommended approval to their uh, membership to the players, basically, and everything looked okay, pending ratification, which means players get to vote on this proposal. Uh, what we found out yesterday and certainly last night was that the players through ratification rejected this this deal this proposal primarily based on that uh, on that portion of what was offered now there's certain other elements to that money being one um, but the nationalization of the three american players starters was a big uh, stumbling block so now the new revised deal from the cfl is that all right so instead of three nationalized americans how about we make it six canadian starters and one nationalized American, they've thrown in a million dollar ratification bonus. So if the Players Association approves this uh, deal and it's ratified, each player will get roughly $2,000 as a bonus. Uh, however, there is some money that's shaved off the 2022 salary cap. So this season's cap will actually go down by about half a million dollars. And uh, listen, at the end of the day, the CFL has given the PA and the membership uh, midnight tomorrow or midnight Thursday uh, to ratify this deal. So by 12.01 a.m. Friday, if we don't have a deal, that's the big question mark. Does the league lock out the players? Do the players call a strike? Do they continue to bargain? Uh, that remains to be seen. This whole ratio thing, Rick, uh, there are two arguments here. One is, you know what, let's get rid of the Canadians because the Americans grow up playing football. They have more coaching in the NCAA. You bring them up, the level of play may be better if you have more Americans on the field. That's the one argument. The other is, it's a Canadian football league. We have to be able to provide a place for Canadian kids who are going through Canadian universities to have a place to land and play professional football. What's the right answer? I think I think it's definitely the latter. Um, you know, we have a national football league that has been around for eons, really. And a big part of that has been Canadian football players. Uh, th- there's a lot more organization, a lot more teams, a lot more coaching, a lot more training down south. There's no question about that. There's also a ton more money down south to do that. But I think if you take the Canadian players out of the game, the Canadiana out of the game, even if they were to retain all the Canadian rules, I think you lose something there. Uh, and, and I think you lose something really big. There is a there's a little bit of a, you know, I want to cheer for you know my favorite team because they have, you know, some really good Canadian players. I think usually the team with the best Canadians, you know, nine times out of 10 wins the Grey Cup. So I think there's an importance to that. Certainly Canadian players make more money. There's even Canadian backups that make more than American starters. They're an important part of this, I think, game. And I think make the game a, a, a lot better. And I think certainly as you get into, you know, scouting uh, and building up, uh, better and better Canadian players down the road. We've seen some really good ones come up the pipe. Uh, I think you got to keep that aspect in the CFL. So we don't, as you said a moment ago, we don't know what's going to happen now. It's Thursday night at midnight is uh, where it gets interesting. Let's say we got to there, and we don't know if this is going to happen, but let's say we got there and there's still no deal and we get into some sort of labor stoppage or whatever. I mean, is this a league that looks at the last two years, it missed all of 2020. It had a reduced season last year, but you know what? By the end of the year, the stadiums were getting full and the Grey Cup was full. Do you look and say, yeah, you know what? If it's delayed, if there's a strike that costs a few games, no big deal. This league has been through worse. 
Or are you now of the opinion that says, no, after those two years, they just cannot for the life of them afford to have another strike and another delay? Well, I'll say the timing is bad, especially coming off a pandemic shortened season, even though it was, you know, by all accounts, a successful one. But, you know, not playing four games uh, or even, you know, uh, shaving off four games from the traditional uh, calendar. Um, you know, some fans were lost uh, during the 2020 loss season because of the pandemic. They can ill afford any kind of labor stoppage, whether it's a lockout or a strike. I would say if there's no deal by midnight Thursday night, I don't think we're going to see any preseason games this weekend because, remember, teams have to travel. I think camps will virtually shut down. Players will go back to their homes, and they'll wait for the next shoe to drop, whatever that shoe is, you know, is going to look like. But these are tentative times for the CFL and the players. You don't like dropping cleats these days. Uh, no. For example... Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. About a week from now, on June 1st, a week and a day from now, as many as 440 employees in the city of Hamilton will be fired by the city for not being vaccinated. That number could go down if some decide that they are going to relent and get vaccinated. Of course, that number will go down. This is unquestionably a controversial move since COVID seems to be on the wane and mandates are being lifted. Doing this now, some say, seems a little after the fact. Well, my next guest also believes it has the potential to be pricey and has asked city staff, presumably not those being fired, to bring a report on what this could cost the city if the deposed workers fight the decision in grievances and court cases and arbitrators and all the rest. That is Ward 7's Esther Pauls, who joins me now. Counselor, thank you for the time today. Uh, thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Do you think what, when this happens, and every, we have every reason to believe that this is going to go ahead right now, there's nothing that's stopping it right now, do, do you believe that when these workers appeal and when they go to court or arbitration or whatever else, do you believe the city is going to keep be able to keep them fired, or do you think they're going to get their jobs back? I believe, if you know the cost, uh, I had uh, a legal expert I was talking to, and just the cost should scare every sixth counselor that voted to terminate. Because, Scott, I want you to know that uh, it went against our HR advice and our um, Dr. Elizabeth. Uh, they said not to, uh, I repeat it, not to terminate. And mainly because I believe the cost is too high. Which is um, what? Which is what? Uh, what did you hear? What was the number that you heard well, as an estimate uh, or a I, guess? I just, uh, believe it or not, somebody emailed me. It was legal and it said, just take the cost per, per se, $60,000 per uh, employee. Um, then you add employee, you have to get each one a lawyer, 10000 Legal costs incurred by Hamilton for each case. $5,000. Total exposure of the city of Hamilton for each case is 75000 So the lowest cost would be $33 million. I had another advice that put it up 50 to $80 million, depending on how many years people have been working for the city of Hamilton. But uh, So this is going to cost a lot. But I want you to say, to terminate them, is arbitrary and unreasonable. And you know what's equally important is the duty of a counselor before making such an arbitrary and unreasonable decision to know the potential cost 
to the taxpayer over, over such a punitive decision. And uh, this speaker was not provided to counsel prior to debating the issue. So this wasn't even brought up to our council meeting when we were debating. Oh, that's just fire dump. Do you ever buy a house without knowing the cost of the house? Do you ever, do you want us to give them a blank check and say, here, here's a city from council. The council decided, here, a blank check, fire them all. This is not what we should be doing. What about uh, what about Esther? Then there are people though who say, "Look, yes, it probably is going to cost money, mm-hmm. but there is a bigger issue at play here, and that is you can't have staff just turn up its nose at city rules. There, it, if the city says that this is a condition of employment, we can't have staff being able to just say, "I don't want to do that," and therefore I can follow whatever rules I want to. If that costs us money to make that case, then no, we have to pay that money. You know what? What, what I, people are saying that, and I say to them this, uh, the province decided not to let go uh, of people in the school board. Teachers don't have to be vaccinated. Can you imagine if we had 440 less teachers? What would it do to our service disruption? What about if we decided, the province decided, police officers, if you don't get vaccinated, you are not going to uh, have a job with uh, the province. You know what would happen? Not safe street. Well, the same thing I ask. You know, we have over 100 HSR, ATU uh, empl- um, 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 uh, employers that are literally going to be fired. And I have one man that's been driving for 36 years for the city of Hamilton. And we're saying, nope, out the door you go. Don't you think the city should consider this first? You know, the unions are going to fight for their employees. And I think every employee is going to sue the city for what's happening. And let me make it clear. We, uh, other cities, I talked to Windsor Essex. Did you know that they, when they terminated back in March, they rehired them all? Burlington, the cost was going to be too much. So you know what they did? They accommodated them. They said, get tested. So they didn't do the most punitive thing that could be done so that the city could lose all this money. And going through disruption, can you imagine? We have, I think, 47 firefighters. They are not going to have the job. Is our city safe? Can you imagine some paramedics? Can you imagine uh, public works? Can you imagine planning? All of these people walking out. What disruption is going to happen to the city of Hamilton? Would you feel differently about this if this was in a different time? If we were right now in the very middle of COVID when it was going strong, would you be less opposed to it if they refused and if this was the decision? Do you know what? We are. It, we gave them till the end of May, and I thought, you know why? Maybe because we thought uh, it'd be over by then, and we wouldn't have to fire them. And my thought was, you know, they worked through the pandemic. Did you know some of them? I found out they were never sick. They weren't vaccinated, and they were not once sick. Uh, they sick. They kept working when it was the hardest time to work, and we expected them to work because, as you know. Uh, not everybody got the vaccine at the same time. It took a good year for everybody to get it. But these employees, they were our heroes. They went to work 
when they were not allowed to get their vaccine yet, and they didn't get the vaccine, they worked through it, they were fine, and, and now they were saying, no, no, out the door you go. I think the city's doing a big mistake, and the mistake is that they're not looking at the bigger picture. And, uh, Esther, we got to run, but just before I let you go, just to confirm, did you say a moment ago that the person who gave you the estimate said $75,000 per staff person? Was that the number? Yeah, they said so, if they got paid 60000 a year. Like, we don't know how much people sure. are getting paid. Uh, they said roughly the lowest would be around $33 million. But then I got okay. another estimate from someone else that said it might be a lot more. And But I want to tell you, counselors breach their code of trust and duty to our taxpayer. I think we, put, we did not do it right. We should have counted the cost and then see what we could have done. Uh, we put the horse before the cart, per se. And for me, that decision is really uh, a mis, um, mistrust, uh, a breach of code of trust for a counselor. Can you imagine, Scott, one more thing. If we told those counselors that voted to fire them, you will have to pay for it. How do they do their household? If it was their money, would they have done it? Mm. No, it's the city's money. So we, it's the taxpayer's money, and I'm defending every taxpayer. I know COVID was real. I know uh, uh, they should get vaccinated, but you know what? People have reason. I have hundreds of emails, the reason why they do not take have the vaccine. To, have to run, but Esther Pauls, thank you. Listen, appreciate thank you, appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The plan by the city to fire up to 440 employees on June 1st if they have not been vaccinated. We heard from Esther Pauls, the counselor who was against it. We've heard from you on the phone lines. The big question, though, is whether you like the idea, not like, no one likes the idea, whether you agree with the idea because it follows a principle or not. Is this going to be something the city can be successful at doing? Because if it can't, it seems like it's a giant waste of money, potentially a giant waste of money. So the question is, if these employees are let go, what's the likelihood that an arbitrator or a court is going to stand by the city and say, yes, you are in the right to do this. And what's the likelihood that the city is going to be told, no, you were wrong and it's suddenly going to cost we, the taxpayers, us, the taxpayers, a lot of money. Chantelle Goldsmith is an employment lawyer in Toronto with Sanfiru Tumarkin. She joins us now. Chantelle, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. So let's get right to the question then. The city lets these people go. Uh, we all assume, and I think fairly, that they will, they're being fired. They're not res- retiring. They are going to grieve this. They're going to fight this somehow. I think that's a fair expectation. What's your take on what the likelihood is that when you consider where COVID is now and everything else, that they are going to be successful or the likelihood the city is going to be successful in court? I have a strong feeling that the individual employees are going to be successful in the court. Um, We've taken a position as a firm that uh, any termination because of a mandatory vaccination policy in Ontario is um, illegal and the mandatory vaccination policy is not enforceable um, and that these individuals, if they're terminated, should be entitled to notice or payment in lieu of the notice of their termination. 
Which means what? I mean, we're talking about like notice. Are we just talking about a few weeks pay or are we talking about severance? So it'll be into the tens of thousands or what do we mean? So, so we're talking about severance pay. So severance pay, there's, there's two different ways that an individual employee um, can recover severance pay. So this is the non-unionized folks. So these are people who would then receive their Employment Standards Act minimum entitlements for termination pay and severance pay. And then their common law notice period, which can make that up to 24 months, depending upon that individual's age and their length of service and their ability to secure reemployment. So it could be a substantial amount of money for the city. And then when you add in legal costs and whatever else, I mean, for 440 people, that, that could be a big nut. For, for sure. And it's not just their wages, right? You have to take in all of their further benefits of employment. So if these individuals had a pension, for example, or if they had um, benefits or if they had a car allowance or anything like that, bonuses, all of that kind of stuff should be included as part of their total remuner- remuneration package that they're receiving as um, notice or payment in lieu of notice. Do you believe that this situation would have been different? Is this is the current COVID climate, does it have an impact on it? If this had been back a year ago when COVID was raging and we were all much seeing it much, much differently and all the mandates were in place and everything else, would this be a different scenario than now when mandates are being lifted and people are seeing fewer cases seemingly? So the legal principles would remain the same, but in terms of... Um, Optics, it looks terrible, in my opinion, on the city, considering where we're at with COVID at this stage. We all know that individuals, even if they're vaccinated for COVID-19, can still contract and can still pass it off to other people. So to mandate your employees to become vaccinated and then terminate them if they don't at this time and at this stage in the pandemic, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, in my opinion. It, it, I mean, what you're saying, though, raises so many questions that you wonder how, like, it, okay, is there... When you look at this, can you see a pathway that an employer would have that they could win this case? Is is there any way that they could win this, do you think? Not from my perspective, no, because that's really changing the essential terms of someone's employment agreement. If that individual agreed to be um, vaccinated for COVID at the time of the start date of their employment, that might change things. But if that individual never did, and most of these people... I'm presuming have not, um, probably all of them have not agreed to that kind of uh, term as part of their employment agreement, then I would have a very difficult time um, saying that that the city would be in any way be able to win this kind of situation. It just is, it's, it's ridiculous that they're taking this hard of a stance at this stage of the pandemic. Last thing, is there any, in a case like this, is there um, sometimes people, there will be punitive damages that'll be put on top for the behavior of the city. Is there any chance of that, that there could be even more than what we're talking about? Or does that not really factor into this situation? No, that's, that's something that will definitely be considered as well as other moral type damages. So, um, for acting in good faith, for example, or failure to act in good faith by the city, that would be something that somebody may be able to go for, or even potentially human rights code damages, too. We're seeing some cases for um, disability or perceived disability discrimination or um, where people's religious exemptions were not adhered to, were not um, followed by the city or other um, employers. Things like that are also things that could come into play for additional damages for these individuals. Chantel Goldsmith from Sanford to Mark, and uh, very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Have a great day. Now, it wasn't written in the Washington Post today. It was actually an older piece, new to me. I had not seen it before, been out for a while. The headline was The Decline of Play in Preschoolers. 
and the rise in sensory issues. And the piece goes on to explain how it seems that kids, especially when they're in preschools or kindergartens or wherever, are playing less these days because their lives are being more structured and organized in an attempt to get them ahead. More learning, less playing. More reading, more academic stuff, less just letting them run free and doing what kids do. And we're talking very young kids here. We're not talking about teenagers. We're talking about very, very young children, of course. But the piece goes on to explain that this idea that we are going to give our kids this academic boost early on by reducing their playtime and increasing their academic time is making the argument that it's it's probably not helping. In fact, it's more than likely hurting the kids. Sandra Delaporta is an assistant professor of educational studies, specializing in social power and power dynamics in early childhood. Uh, she's involved in social cognition in early childhood, young children, social relationships, family dynamics. Her resume is very long. <laughs> she is with Brock University. She joins us now. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate this. No problem. <laughs> it, uh, now, forgive me being very simple with this. This is obviously not my area of expertise, but it seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? That kids play. Kids have always played. If you give a kid five minutes, they will find something to do with playing. That's how they built. That's how they function. They need to play, it would seem. Am I missing something or is that no. stra as straightforward yeah, you as it, got it Right. Yeah. So children have an innate desire to play. It's what they do. It's how they express themselves. And it's really interesting, actually, if you ask a kid, like, what is play? They're like, what? What do you mean? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I've inter interviewed young children before and asked them that question, and they don't even know how to respond because they don't see it as something different than what they just do. Yeah. And this is, is it fair to say that this is how they develop, that they their communication skills, their social skills, their coordination skills, every other way is refined and they figure it all out when they're doing this? Right, exactly. So children through play, they express what they know, they practice the skills they've learned, they have like kind of that free space to practice those skills and to develop skills as well. They um, can start to problem solve, they can figure out what they want to do, make their own decisions. And it all happens in that kind of unstructured play in particular, where they have that opportunity to just, you know, they have a thought, they can just act on their thought and, you know, use their own power and agency to do that. And every parent and every adult, and I don't mean to be ridiculous here, but every parent <laughs> and every adult who watch can see this. Can they not? I mean, it's, it's pretty clear when you let your kid go, you go, um, wow, that's pretty cool <laughs> what they're doing. I see what they're doing here. Like it's, it's hard not to see that they're figuring stuff out as they play. Right. Um, and that's if a parent is in a position where they can recognize it and they can see it as learning. So um, we have kind of difficulty, especially in preschool and kindergarten, where parents, some parents, not all, some parents assume that um, play does not equal learning. Um, so it's kind of there's this um, kind of societal pressure, I think, in people's minds where they just think, in order to learn, you have to be doing something academic, which is usually traditionally focused on literacy and math or, you know, worksheets, table work. But there's such a world, there's a huge world out there um, of what children can learn and should learn to become kind of whole humans 
right? So I think that I think the problem is might be in the term learning, where we have to mm-hmm. unlearn what learning is. <laughs> so um, when you say learning, you know, then the the op- the yeah. opposite of learning in a parent or an adult looking at this, the opposite would be that play is then just kind of a waste of time. They're just they're frittering away their time and not accomplishing anything. Yeah, exactly. So some that's. Uh, kind of part of the misconception or what if kind of we've been trained I feel that way in in kind of the school system or you know the traditional school system that is phasing out now but that's kind of the what parents tend to think um, in that here's area. an impossible Sandra here's an impossible question for you I, I'm asking you and I I honestly don't even expect you to have an answer for this but how is it that we this generation us the last two generations I don't know whatever can look back and say every other generation got this all wrong and only we are the ones who are able to figure out how this is done right. It, it, it just, it seems so pompous in some ways to, to feel that way. Yeah, well, again, I think it really has to do with, you know, when kids are in school, at least that's a very difficult question to answer. And it's very, I know, I know it's unfair. I, I know <laughs> when you answer it, when you put it that way, but um so we have to debate the role of play in learning. And then if if we're putting children in a classroom where we're grading them on their abilities that we deem appropriate for our society, then that's what parents want their kids to do is do well in school. Because if you do well in school, that means you'll do well in your future life, right? So I think it has to do with kind of what we're putting forward for people to understand what is um learning and what we have to focus on and we're really ch- we're changing uh, and we have been for the past several years and understanding kind of this 21st century learners approach um where we want children to learn how to problem solve and be creative and think for themselves rather than be told what to think right rather than kind of teach the test we we've kind of realized that oh if we just focus on these one skills like these cognitive skills then we lose out on the all these other skills I don't know yeah, if I'm answering again, your question or if I'm just going no, no, off and again, but you know, no, again, it just it sort of strikes me that, um, and maybe I'm being harsh here, but it, it it seems like the same story we hear in so many other areas of children's lives that whether it's sports or dance or school or whatever else, like we parents are injecting ourselves and ruining what kids are doing because we just can't stay out of their way and just let them be kids. Yep, that's essentially what the research says. (laughs) So um, I think so we have to be careful too. like when we talk about things for, you know, how to help your children be successful, you know, we have to think about what does it mean to be successful, right? And we want kids to make great question. So for kids, yeah, so for kids to be like really happy and um, like be mentally healthy, they have to make their own decisions, they have to initiate their own, like meet their own desires for what they want to learn, right? And if they do love dance, great, put them in dance, but don't don't overschedule them so that they don't have the actual opportunity to decide what they want to do, take their own risks, um, you know, meet their own goals and kind of just be in charge of their own lives. And it doesn't mean, again, if we're saying, oh, let children kind of be in charge in their play through unstructured play, it doesn't mean, oh, they should just do unstructured play all the time. Right. So we're not completely right, in the right. wrong by giving them limits and structuring them because kids need structure. Let, let me ask you a question. You know, this they is need a to personal... understand that there are limits. Yeah. Let me ask you a personal question. When you were a sure. kid, uh, and I don't even know what age I'll put this up to, did you mm-hmm. ever break a bone, get stitches, sprain an ankle, 
scrape a knee, do any of those things? Um, I didn't break a bone, but I did do a lots of rough and tumble play, lots of outdoor play, lots of play without, you know, you know, limp in limit geographical limits, but like, you know, freedom to kind of go to the park on my own and go bike riding on my own and things like that. And yeah, because it seems that the reason I ask, (laughs) it seems to me that we've almost now decided that our kids shouldn't we, we have to remove the risk and whether that's part of this as well. I mean, we want to put the emphasis on learning and do the reading as very young, but we also don't, you right. know, if, if a kid breaks his wrist or her wrist at school, there's a chance mom or dad is going to be really upset and maybe sue the school or whatever I mean, right. we've created. <laughs> and so now not only are we saying, well, maybe reading is safer and takes away some of the risks. So our teachers and our school are not a, like we're, we're, we seem to be doing everything to get in the way of doing the very things that you're saying the kids really need to do. Right. So there's, there's a huge body of literature on risk play and how children have to take risks in order to make their own decisions and know what is risky or not. So I'll give you a great example. So if a kid is climbing a tree and you help them climb the tree, that means they're not ready to climb the tree. They have to make their own decision and have that confidence uh, no, feel confidence like physically, but also mentally to say, I can climb the tree, this tree. That's allowing the child to figure it out for themselves. And really, we, I, I feel like when we think of parenting, we think, oh, you know what? The hardest part of parenting is letting your child go, you know, when they're older and kind of separating. But actually, I feel like it's just letting them engage in risky play is right now the hardest things, thing for parents to do because as you said, they're worried about their safety. And they're like, oh, you know, it's all these other people's fault that my kid got hurt. But we have to put the responsibility on the child to, as I said, make their own decisions in that regard. Yeah. And look, nobody wants their kid to come home with a broken wrist. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, who, who cares? Sure. That's, that's not happen. <laughs> but, ac- but right, accidents happen. And I mean, heaven knows my, my mom, uh, they probably should have renamed a wing of sick kids hospital after me. I was there so much in Toronto <laughs> growing up. I mean, and, and you know what? It's okay. It, it's, it wasn't always my favorite thing to get stitches or get a cast on, but you know, you play rough and you do wild things and you know, we survive yeah. thankfully anyway. Yeah. Uh, and you probably Dilla- learned a ton of stuff doing that. <laughs> Yeah, all about gravity. Uh, Sandra <laughs> Teleporta with Brock University. Great conversation. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If you are a fan of the Conservatives and Doug Ford, the news these days sounds pretty good. If you are not a fan of Doug Ford and the Conservatives, the news these days sounds not very good. He apparently has what pollsters are calling a commanding lead, a decided lead, a large lead. I don't know, pick your word, but he's looking like he's in pretty good shape. And some pollsters are saying, you know, in good enough shape that we're talking about another majority government, unless something goes awry in the next few days. I want to bring in Kate Harrison of Summer Strategies. We'd love to bring Kate on to talk about politics and these kinds of things. Kate, how are you today? I'm okay, Scott. How are you doing? I am doing, well, probably not as well as Doug Ford, but probably better than <laughs> uh, Stephen Del Duca or Andrea Horvath, quite honestly. Um, are you surprised at all that we're now two weeks roughly from an election and in that whole time there seems to have been basically no movement that Doug Ford started here he is still here the uh, as I said Del Duca and Horvath have been really unable to penetrate those numbers at all 
Well, two weeks is a long time in politics, and a lot can happen in the final dash towards voting day next next Thursday. Uh, but I'm I'm really not surprised to see Doug Ford hold on to his commanding lead, and there's there's a few reasons. I think that there was a lot of healthy skepticism leading into this about whether or not Stephen Del Duca or Andrea Horvath could mobilize opposition in either of their party's favor. Um, you know, they're, they've been around the block a few times. They've run uh, in a number of campaigns. Del Duca under the wind government. This is Andrea Horvath's fourth election. And uh, I think a lot of people were skeptical about whether or not they could really become the change agents uh, that were needed to really make a dent in, in Ford's uh, popularity or his re-election prospects. And it seems that uh, that skepticism was warranted. Neither of them have really been able to do that. Uh, but the other thing I think that has really gone in Doug Ford's favor is the ballot question has changed. So uh, if this election were happening in March, I, I think we would probably be heading to the polls thinking about Doug Ford's management of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and he was facing a lot of criticism for that, even at the beginning part of this year. Um, now we're not. Now we're talking about cost of living and affordability and inflation and a lot of economic issues and troubles that people are facing. And traditionally uh, and historically, conservatives have done well when those are the ballot box questions. So uh, Ford benefits from that and a weakened opposition. There was a story in the Toronto Star today that says the headline is Confidential Liberal Memo Lays Out Strategy to Hold Doug Ford's PCs to a Minority Government. Uh, this is, I mean, when you hear that, that almost sounds like the Liberals are already, already waving the white flag and saying this is done. They would argue that's not the case, but if if your memo, if your strategy is now how do we not give him a majority, you're expecting that you're done, aren't you? Yeah, and I, I think that that's probably a soft appeal for some strategic voting, you know, in writings where the Liberal candidate might be able to eke out the NDP. But I remember a very similar sentiment uh, on election night eve uh, federally in the fall. Uh, somebody from the Aaron O'Toole and Conservative camp was saying, well, you know, our goal here is really a two-election strategy, and, you know, we want to try and hold Trudeau to a weakened, uh, weakened minority. Well, that's not the sign that the things are going particularly well, let alone that you're going to uh, seek to form a government. So, um, yeah, I think that that is a realistic expectation. Is it one that I would want floating around publicly? Uh, probably not, because uh, if the Liberals are, are already admitting defeat, uh, and I was thinking about either NDP or Liberal, maybe I'd vote with my heart and I vote NDP again. Kate, we have heard, and you have too, and, and you know, it's funny, earlier in the show, hours ago, I was talking to Mike Wilner, who writes about baseball, and I said the same thing. I, I, I don't often go to social media as the place to get good ideas. However, <laughs> uh, for months or years even, we have been, if you follow social media, been reading about how hated Doug Ford is, and we've been hearing about how what an awful job he's doing, and the voices are loud, and sometimes there's a lot of them, what is this now, assuming this holds up, what is this, what are these poll numbers, what would this election be telling us about the loud voices versus the majority voices versus whatever? What, what does it tell us about social media and judging politicians' popularity and everything else based on those things? Well, I'm reminded that only about 8% of the Canadian public are on Twitter for example. So, uh, and I would say there's a high uh, percentage of those 8%, uh, that small 8% that are political and involved in politics and those that observe it and, 
and analyze it and, and nerds like me that are, are talking <laughs> about this all the time. But that is not the electorate, right? And so um, it's one thing to have a really effective social media campaign where, you know, the goal really should be to try and mobilize existing supporters, get them to share your messages. And if grandma sees it on Facebook, that's great. Uh, but that's not really a GOTV strategy. And I think, you know, there was it, it, there was widespread criticism of Doug Ford in the months uh, beginning this year around his management of the COVID pandemic. That criticism was coming from the left and the right, right? Like, I'd be remiss not to mention that there's two different splinter parties running to the right of the Ontario PCs that really have a COVID fatigue message as their kind of core offering for voters. But we're not really talking about that now. And I think that ultimately people's uncertainty about the moment we're in, Scott, and the uh, the, the challenges that they foresee in terms of affordability ultimately trump whatever uh, noise and criticism existed around Ford during those pandemic management. There's, of course, going to be a number of people that, I are really upset by his decision to close schools, for example, or to keep small businesses shuttered. Um, and that's going to continue to follow him. But is it what people are thinking about when they head to the ballot box? Increasingly less so. Uh, and I think that for Del Duca and Horvath, they actually are fighting yesterday's battle. A lot of what they've put to voters has been on how they would have done things differently. And they were running a campaign as if we were in a March timeframe, but now it's June and a lot of time has passed and they're not necessarily connecting in the same way that Ford is on the issues that voters are talking about right now. We got to go, but th there was another um, study or poll or something that was done recently and the person pointed out the, the, the theory here was, you know, people don't really vote for giant platforms. What they vote for is the likability of the candidate. And, you know, we've probably known that for a long time with, you know, certain candidates that have won. Go back to Kennedy versus Nixon with the debates. I mean, who do you like better? But is this is this saying something about Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca as candidates and as leaders if a guy who's been through this whole thing with COVID and has been up and down and people have very much know Doug Ford now that he seems to be the more likable guy. Is this saying something about the other leaders? Yeah, indeed. It, I, I think that that's a, that's a great point. Um, Doug Ford uh, was also the least popular option uh, for Ontario PC leadership candidates in the 2018 provincial leadership after Patrick Brown was ousted and uh, there was a competitive race to replace him. So the least popular option amongst the electorate came in with a majority government, uh, largely due to Kathleen Wynne's uh, unpopularity. But uh, likability is a factor, but authenticity is really what I think people come to understand when they're thinking about Doug Ford. I think there's a, a sentiment, might not like all of his decisions, but I think that generally uh, he's viewed as someone who's willing to take tough decisions in order to do what he thinks is best for the province. I think that Horvath and Del Duca struggle with that authenticity. They struggle to pose uh, some type of a real change uh, to the Ford uh, to the Ford ways. And so that is what is leaving them kind of grasping at straws and, and fighting between each other, frankly, about who's going to end up uh, being the official leader of the opposition because government seems out of reach for both of them. Even the dog in the background agrees with you. Uh, Kate Harris, <laughs> thanks so much for doing this. Always appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.